Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wayne. I'm Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> For some years now, there's been growing concern about transparency in local government decision-making. A recent Victorian ombudsman's report found that it was actually a lottery around Victoria whether residents had good access to council decision-making through open meetings and live streaming and other innovations or whether meetings took place behind closed doors. It's been almost six months since we um, elected last year for local councils and we've asked Stephen Main to have a chat with us about this issue and find out really if local government transparency is likely to improve. He's, of course, a journalist, shareholder activist and former Melbourne City Councillor. And it's good to have you with us again, Stephen. And I suppose it's good to understand first um, why councils would make decisions behind closed doors because we're seeing it happen around the state. Well, I think the number one reason why it happens is um, a culture which doesn't support transparency and um, fear of embarrassment uh, if you make certain decisions um, in public. So, you know, at City of Melbourne, we disclose our councillor expense claims on a quarterly basis on the website, um, but very few other councils in Victoria um, do that. So, um, you know, ex- 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 expose and explain your councillor expense claims and put them on the website. It's the same with um, public questions. Uh, the majority of councils in Victoria don't allow um, public questions, or if they do, it's got to be written, you've got to give notice, you know, it's all those sorts of things. Whereas at the City of Melbourne, uh, four times a month, we completely allow unscripted, without notice, oral public questions. And that puts councillors under pressure sometimes and they don't look very good, but that is, is, is accountability and more councils should do that. And I suppose for those that haven't been to a council meeting in their local area, they might not realise what they should be expecting. Is this part of the problem if some councils aren't allowing easy public access that people don't even know that they should have it? Yeah, well, I mean, the agendas for council meetings, you know, uh, rarely go up on the homepage of a website. I mean, often, you know, they'll come out on a Thursday or Friday and they're buried. So people don't even know that there's a council meeting on, let alone that they can go along and, uh, and ask a question. And, um, and the majority of councils are still not even providing, you know, archived audio of those meetings when that is an absolute no-brainer because, uh, you know, 99.9% of people don't make it to a council meeting. So at the very least, you should provide an audio recording of that meeting so that um, those members of the community who missed it can come along and find out what actually happened. I mean, at City of Melbourne, for instance, we started including submissions, written submissions, along with the minutes. So it's very comprehensive. You've got public questions, you've got audio recordings, you've even got the written submissions uh, sitting on the website. But this is an absolute minority position and the vast majority of councils don't do that. And many of them don't even record in the minutes who voted for and who voted against. So if you're upset with a councillor about how they voted on a planning matter and you look at the minutes... You can't even see who was for or against. It just says carried or defeated. So, 
you know, there's a long way to go uh, to improve local government um, transparency and hopefully the state government's review of the Local Government Act will see some long overdue reform. And so you mentioned that fear of uh, embarrassment might be kind of one reason why council decides to, to take a decision or deliberation behind closed doors. But, I mean, given there is so much diversity in the way that different councils operate around the state, are there any kind of legal or binding uh, parameters within which councils need to operate in terms of the types of decisions they can take into the private realm? Um, well, look, the, the most common thing that goes into the private realm is uh, tender results. So when you conduct a tender and the council's announcing the winner, uh, quite often these will be done in, in confidential. Um, at City of Melbourne, for instance, you know, five years ago, every single tender, no matter how controversial, was done in confidential. And we flipped that and said, no, the default position is now going to be that every tender is done in open session unless, and these are the two reasons why you will have a tender and confidential, unless there's a negotiation that needs to be approved, and of course you don't want to publicly disclose your negotiating position, or if there was you know, heavy criticism of a tenderer, you know, where you name the incumbent and you say they've really provided a poor service, and council really probably shouldn't be publicly getting stuck into commercial tenderers. So they're the two reasons why you can go into confidential uh, criticisms of tenderers and negotiations, but that doesn't happen in 90% of tenders, so they really should be out there uh, uh, in the open, and uh, but not enough councils are actually doing that. So in, when uh, the Victorian Ombudsman Deborah Glass had a look at these issues, um, she welcomed the State Government Inquiry of the Act and, and she sort of recommended that there be a public interest test introduced and also requirements for the closing of meetings um, to remove a so-called catch-all pr- pr- um, provision. I wonder if you can sort of talk about that, Stephen, because, um, you know, as as a public, what would we get if if the Ombudsman's recommendations are, are taken up in the review? Well, at the moment, about so close to 20% of resolutions in Victoria are done uh, in confidential. And if you, if you had this public interest test, I just think that number would fall, and it would fall to below 10%, because at the moment it's very easy. The CEO can just decide that this item will be dealt in confidential, and even sometimes councillors can actually influence that. I mean, uh, just just last week at City of Melbourne, the Lord Mayor, Robert Doyle, put up a notice of motion proposing a a $20,000 payment to cover the legal fees of outgoing councillor Michael Kaefa, who had been removed by a a VCAT decision um, in, in very controversial circumstances. Now... I might actually be going along to the council meeting tomorrow night to ask why was that decision taken in confidential, a proposal to pay a councillor $20,000 to help cover their legal fees. It's not particularly um, commercial or sensitive um, and people might have wished, wanted to do submissions and, and, and discuss that. Now, at least they made the decision public afterwards in the minutes, but I could see no reason why that item was in confidential, but obviously the Lord Mayor, along with management, decided that this would be a confidential notice of meeting, and I think that's, that's the, the, the discretion that councillors currently have and, and officers 
which the local government act should remove. You shouldn't be able to make a decision to make a payment to a councillor in confidential. Something like that should always be an open session. Stephen Maines with us, journalist and former Melbourne City Council member, and I'm sure they'd love to see you there, Stephen. And, um, you know, many in the public, I think, applaud the idea that you can go and ask those questions. But you were sort of saying earlier that many councils, the public may not be able to turn up and then find out that something was made in confidence and then ask why it was and get an answer in in sort of an open council meeting? Yeah, look, it's quite difficult. I mean, at City of Melbourne, at least, we have three public meetings a month, so it's, it's quite often. So the first Tuesday and the third Tuesday are the committee meetings where you can ask questions at the beginning and the end. But many councils only have monthly meetings. They ban questions on the agenda. They say, well, you're not going to take any questions on the agenda. So you've got to wait another month sometimes. Um, to get in there and, and ask and ask your question. So, look, public questions are a wonderful thing. Uh, you do have a little bit of a problem where if you allow it, sometimes you can get the usual suspects who come to every council meeting getting stuck into council. So you do need some sort of way to try and manage that because councillors can get attacked a lot. And that's one of the reasons why councils don't allow public questions is they might have had a bad experience with certain ratepayers or residents who come along and, and just continually get stuck into them. So, uh, you know, you, you've got to balance that. But, uh, but overall, I think the benefit of the accountability from public questions to see how good the councils are at actually knowing their staff uh, is to be welcomed. And you get more people attending council meetings if more people knew you could ask public questions and there was less bureaucracy around it. I mean, Burundara has last year introduced new procedural issues that mean you can't just get up and ask an unscripted question. Um, you know, they're, just, they're putting barriers in the way. It's got to be, you know, on the agenda. It's got to be you give written notice. Uh, and it's just unhealthy that Burundara has, has put those obstacles in the way of public questions. And reflecting on, on your experience uh, in the City of Melbourne, um, Stephen, as, as well as, I guess, your, your interest in this area, is much of the, the secrecy or lack of transparency throughout Victoria due to kind of a, a deliberate a deliberate secrecy or, or an idea of wanting to have those discussions in-house free of kind of um, public view, public questioning? Or is it kind of a, a culture of, of, of secrecy that's developed in councils that kind of has gone unchecked without people really pulling councils up on it? Well, I mean, I'd just start by saying that it's, it is far more tra- transparent than state and federal government because at least our cabinet minute meetings effectively are held in public. I mean, you know, when was the last time you could go along to a, a state cabinet meeting and ask a question? So it is, it is, you know, the most transparent and open level of local government. But the problem is, is that then many councils choose to, you know, not have open debates in those open council meetings or those open those open cabinet meetings so i think it's partly just the culture there's not a lot of local government people who really believe in transparency i was amazed how many times i put up notices of motion to the the mav the municipal association of victoria and alga the australian local government association proposing things like you know uh disclosing executive pay pre-approval at public council meetings of uh interstate travel by councillors, um, audio on council websites, uh, releasing your lease register, all the buildings you own and the leases you have. And this kept getting voted down. So that across the sector, I found that there wasn't voting support for fairly standard 
transparency measures. I mean, it's amazing that the, there's only two or three councils in Victoria that actually reveal their CEO's salary directly and the salary of their directors, you know, the actual specific amounts they're paid and the, and the length of their contracts. And that's, I think, City of Manningham and City of Melbourne are the only two. That's standard with public companies. And it's public interesting... Um, law have to do it. Uh, you've been on, on both those councils, Stephen, which is interesting. Um, but I wonder, with the new um, with the new councils, I mean, they've been in place all, almost six months. Are we seeing at all a change in approach uh, or are we seeing a continuation of, of what's been a pattern for some years? Um, look, I haven't seen any big drive for reform uh, in, in these new councils particularly. I think the reform will ultimately come. Uh, with the Local Government Act. I think that's that's where it needs to happen. I mean, we saw an amazing confidential decision, for instance, from Burundara last last year where they removed their delegate to the MAV, Councillor Cole Ross, who happened to be the president of the MAV. So you had the president of, or the acting president of the MAV and her councillors had a confidential meeting and they removed her in confidence and then sort of later put out a press release. And so we still don't know to this day which of the Burundara councillors voted to pull the rug on their own de- delegate being the president of the MAV, which was an unprecedented sort of uh, intervention. Um, and I, I just think that was just extraordinary. And, and it says to me, Burundara has got quite a, a secretive culture. Um, you know, they voted against uh, releasing their their property holdings, for instance, at an MAV meeting, where it's pretty standard. I mean, if you own a whole bunch of properties on behalf of the ratepayers and you have them valued every year, why don't you tell the community what they're actually worth? But uh, very few councils are doing that. So I think reform's going to have to come from more ombudsman's reports and then the Local Government Act, you know, limiting the amount of things you can do in confidential, mandating disclosure of things like uh, lease registers, council expenses, uh, interstate travel and the executive pay. Um, and uh, hopefully the state government will do that as part of their review of the Local Government Act. And, and we, we can't really rely on local newspapers to be calling for this either because, I, I mean, in my local paper, we're getting less and less reporting actually on council matters than we used to. I think that that is actually quite a tragedy that uh, the accountability you would normally get from the fourth estate has weakened. And I, I think coverage of local councils has never been worse uh, than it is now and um, you know and even many councils don't even have a local blogger who sort of has a look at their affairs and, and puts pressure on them so I think the model is so broken there's actually an argument for local government itself uh, funding some form of you know journalistic website at arm's length that you know probably you know properly and sensibly covers the sector doesn't beat up on the sector but actually just seriously covers issues like governance and and transparency because it really does matter how your local government is performing um but there's very little scrutiny on them and they're not being particularly voluntarily transparent so uh, i think there's a fair way to go to um you know keep the media pressure on on the sector and it's good that programs like yours on triple r actually you know do discuss local council matters from time to time because it does matter and it, it should be more seriously scrutinised. Totally agree. And thanks for joining us. And we'll catch you again very soon. And I suppose I um, can watch your Twitter handle to uh, see what happens at that next Melbourne City Council <laughs> meeting. Thanks heaps, Stephen.
Have a great day. All the best. You too. Stephen Main, journalist and former Melbourne City Councillor. And I think we're getting better as a society of understanding that not all new parents have a great time when a new baby comes into their lives. Uh, while we expect a lack of sleep and uh, everyday challenges like taking all day to get dressed and have a shower, I joked about, there's still an expectation that mothers in particular put on a coping face even if they're falling apart. And our next guest, author and editor Jessica Friedman, has written an absolutely beautiful collection of essays exploring what helped her recover from postnatal depression after the birth of her son Owen. She writes with heartbreaking honesty and deep love about how she weaves together um, her life after a really difficult period and stories of her personal history with uh, anxiety and depression and how it's affected her life and art and the book's called Things That Helped and a beautiful title for a gorgeous book. Thanks for coming in Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I mean you write in the book that when you were unwell you couldn't read or write. I wonder how you pulled these essays together. When did that all start happening again? Um, It started happening about two years after Owen was born and it happened with difficulty, you know. I, things came back slowly and I started to be and feel more capable. I started working again on a part-time basis as the publications manager at Australian Poetry. So I was around all these really great poets and poems and work that was intense and small and fragmentary and in itself complete. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know if I can write a, a poem, but maybe I can write some things that are small. And then I wrote quite a few things that were small and they started to connect up to one another and then they became essays. And what was that process like for you? Because you, you write in the book going through, I suppose, your, your darker phases and one of the, the biggest losses for you at that time was um, how words weren't coming to you as they used to. Your love affair with words had kind of been lost for a time there. So was it kind of, even though you were writing about some very difficult things was it joyous in a way to be able to put things down on paper again oh totally yeah uh, not being able to really read even when I was feeling quite ill was quite confronting and there's a lot in the book about (laughs) as you do maybe after a bad breakup going through uh, trying to find a good alternative that was maybe a bit safe and a bit boring and would challenge me in a new way so I've tried you know becoming involved with dance learning to weave uh, singing more, using other people's words, because I just felt as though I was putting myself in a position of vulnerability to have so much invested in this one art form that all of a sudden it turned out could just vanish. Yeah, and that comes in really strongly. I love how you... Uh, I mean, the the title of the book, Things That Helped, is really perfect, I think, because a lot of things did help you, and one was turning to weaving and, as you say, other art forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, had you always been a weaver? No, no, that was um, that came about by, like, pure, lovely chance in that when you're a writer, you get to learn about lots of different things. And I was on Instagram all the time because, you know, when you have a small baby and you're breastfeeding, nowadays you can scroll through Instagram and be on Twitter at the same time, which is really great. You can only imagine how incredibly boring that must have been back in the day. I mean, beautiful and and touching, but sometimes, you know, like 45 minutes into a feed, you think, I need some mental stimulation. So I was, <laughs> I was scrolling through Instagram and I kept seeing all these weavings pop up. And um, in particular, Marianne Moody seems to be developing a cult following. And then I started following other weavers. And I you know, thought, well, there's probably a story here. So I pitched it to the Australian Financial Review, who I was doing some writing for. And they said, great, go away and take a class and then tell us what it was like. And so I took a class and then I, they let me keep the loom and I kept 
it at home and I took it out and I started making things up and it was so satisfying. Just a craft that you could you could see what it would be and you could see it emerging as you made it. You know, writing revol- for me involves so much uh, revision. They're just having to commit to making something and then seeing what you have made and accepting all of its faults and flaws because it is done was really exciting. And also, I mean, you do explore in the essay on called weaving about how text and textiles and the connections really between storytelling and, and textile art. Yeah, that was a really fabulous one to discover. I got to really geek out over heaps of research. And there is this incredible body of mostly feminist art history and research into textile production, which before literacy was widespread, was one of the main ways of making signification. And, um, you know, even just things like the embroideries on a priest's robe or the particular cut of somebody's shirt could, could tell you everything that you needed to know. And people read textiles in a very specific and informed way. And so looking at the idea of making textiles as being really a precursor to making text, uh, it just felt very intuitively right. And I wasn't surprised at all when I started to research it that, of course, other people have figured this out before. <laughs> <laughs> the book is very personal. It's, it's all about you, I guess, finding your way through your depression and, and engaging with these different um, activities and art forms. Also, you talk um, about Anoni in there and, mm-hmm. and your great affinity with her. I love her. Was it a balance that you, you, I guess, grappled with when you were writing the book, not to make it sort of too universal, but also to be able to appeal to other people who might be going through a similar phase? Yeah, it is a very personal piece of writing, but that's mostly because I just wanted it to be completely frank. And I think, you know, you, I think you find the universal in the personal. And I was going to say, I hope that other women don't relate too closely, but I know, of course, that women who have experienced postnatal depression will find some commonality in the things that I'm talking about. Um, it's funny, I didn't even really think of myself being within the text as I was writing it, you know, for like the eye of the hurricane and stepping back and seeing it as a bound object and picking it up and going, oh, there's me. <laughs> um, it's a strange feeling, but I did really want to keep that personal element in there. I mean, also because, you know, as you say, I don't want to try to speak for all women. It's such a personal experience and it can be so nuanced and complex and informed by culture and society and relationships, you know, even whether it was your first child, not your first child, well, what kind of mother you had, what your relationship with your father is like, what your favourite foods are. You know, it, it's, there is no one story about depression, so I could only tell my version. I remember when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was uh, hanging out with a friend and her mother and her mother had, had really suffered terribly from postnatal depression and she warned me. She said, this could happen to you. And I remember it was really one of the first times I'd heard mm-hmm. of postnatal depression. And she said, I'd never had depression before. This this happened to me and it was very life-changing and difficult and hard to come back from. And I wonder, I mean, now we have maternal health nurses mm-hmm. checking for for um, signs of depression in, in um, new mothers in particular. How much did people around you know or understand what you were going through? Oh, no, I think a bit understand, not a lot. It's one of those things that really is so hard to understand from the outside in because it's a deeply isolating and subjective experience. And when you don't really have the right language to say, this is what I'm going through, there's there's no bridge 
to the community, really. You have to be able to identify it within yourself before you can really ask for help. I mean, my husband was super worried about me. My mother was very worried about me. The people closest to me realised probably before I did that something was seriously not right. But because so many new parents just do disappear into this fog of sleeplessness and, you know, being a bit isolated from their communities because they're just... They, your life revolves around this new little thing in your house without cease. You're just constantly attending to its needs. And that's your role as a new parent. And so I think it's quite common for women, particularly just fall off the, off the map a bit, and you expect that when someone has a new baby, you'll see them in about three months and things will be manageable then. Yeah. And I mean, how, how, when you look back when you were writing these essays two years, um, following, um, the birth of Owen, how, when you look back, were you surprised at what you were going through or how difficult it was? How, how, um, unwell you were? A bit, yeah. I, um, I look back now and realise how sick I was and it just kind of descended by degrees uh, so that while I was going through that time, every day was a new normal. And, and it must be an, an intensely lonely time when you're going through it, but, but reflecting on that time and also speaking with people and, and showing people some of your writing as, as you're preparing for this book to be published, did you find that there were people you met and spoke with who kind of understood and said, oh, that's, that's very similar to what, to what I went through? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just nodding, forgetting that I'm in the radio right now. Uh, it was funny, even when I would, you know, say to people for the first time, oh, I'm writing a book, they'd say, well, what are you doing? I'm writing a book at the moment, like tentatively, as though they were going to say, oh, no, you're not. You know, you're not a real grown-up author. I don't believe you. I'd say, I'm writing a book, and they'd say, oh, what's it about? You know, oh, it's about so many different things. I'd say, I'm writing about postnatal depression and... I'd so rarely get past the end because they'd jump in and say, oh, my sister went through that. Oh, I just don't talk about it enough. And they would tell me their story. And so it was a great, actually, a great entry into these deeper lives of so many people that I didn't necessarily know closely but who were prepared to speak so frankly and intimately because the need to speak felt so great. It's two minutes past ten here on Triple R. We've got Jessica Friedman with us. She's an author and editor, and her book called Things That Help Essays uh, has been released recently through Scribe. And uh, uh, as I keep saying, they are beautiful essays. They're very, um, you know, it's literature what you've produced. And oh, I think thank you. I, I don't. I mean, I've read. You know, I'm not look the hugest reader of of sort of self help books or whatever. I'm mothering or parenting or anything like that. This isn't in that realm. This is different in my view but there is something um very uh as you say intimate with reading these essays that it is very personal it's literature but it's very personal and i wonder if that did you set out to to write in that way or that's how it happened did i set out to write literature yeah no <laughs> in that sort of um, i just thought i would be great yeah <laughs> <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> it was so easy. I'm just that It's good. not instructional. It's an no, exploration. It's yeah. yeah, no, I didn't want to be didactic in any way. I, I want to feel people as, I want people to feel as though they're in conversation with the book and that it can just maybe open up some new spaces for them that they then can enter and inhabit and figure out for themselves. Because God, you know, like I know how I got better, but I'm certainly not an authority on anything else. 
And I mean, it's postnatal depression is is better understood than it used to be, but still, so many parents, mainly women, suffer incredibly from it. And I was shocked. Um, I think this might have been in your book or an article that you were quoted, and I'm not sure, but to learn that the leading cause of death among new mothers is suicide as a result of postnatal depression. And I wonder, reflecting on all the things that that helped you get through that episode, what can we do better as a society to support new mothers who may be going through this? Money. I mean, there are lots of social things that we can do, but it's infrastructure that's really needed. It's one in seven new parents experiences postnatal depression, and there are not, you know, one in seven beds on maternal health wards that are set aside to meet the need. It's just dramatically underfunded, and it's a very confusing system to navigate. It's not really a system insofar as it is five or six different alternatives that kind of speak to each other and also don't really speak to each other. There's just not enough publicly funded places to go. And what you really need is not to have to think about it. You just need to be able to walk out the door, go to somebody, say, I'm in crisis, and then be looked after for a little while until you are no longer in crisis. And of course, it's, I mean, it's under-prioritised, I think, for reasons having to do with all those big, you know, factors of patriarchy and culture and women's health being a bit undervalued. Uh, I think it's also the need is not met because so many women take it upon themselves, or new mothers, new parents, I should say, to just get through. You know, I, I think as you were saying before, we're kind of taught to just cope with things. And it's the same as I didn't realise that I had a really bad uterine infection after I had my cesarean because it was the first time I'd had major abdominal surgery and it was supposed to hurt. And it's the same with having a child. Well, you know that they're going to wake up every three hours and want to feed. And so if you haven't done that before, you don't know what it's going to feel like. You don't have any metric for differentiating between, oh, I'm feeling healthily exhausted and I'm feeling unhealthily exhausted. You're just fucking tired all the time. And there are lots of things you can keep an eye out for. There are early indicators. Um, as we were talking about before, not everyone who experiences postpartum depression has uh, experienced mental illness before. I think it's a real coin toss. It's about 50-50 on whether you have had depression in the past. It's slightly more common amongst women who have had mental illness. But a whole swathe of women are just having depression for the very first time and thinking that it feels like motherhood. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And this idea of of sleeplessness, people expect Mm -hmm. it, but insomnia is a completely different thing. Yeah, yeah. And that definitely was, for me, sleeplessness is always tied into having a bit of a poor time with my mental health. And I just stopped sleeping because that feeling of being on the cusp of sleep and then feeling having your baby cry for you is so horrible. (laughs) And one thing that I, uh, I suppose, really had rapport with is this idea of motherhood and, and art and for you not being able to read, not being able to write in the way that you were used to or, or hoping to, um, losing that connection was very affecting. Uh, and it's something I imagine affects many other women as well. And But it's another dimension that, uh, in your experience speaking with health professionals, they didn't understand mm. that loss and how profound it was. A few people have um, spoken about this recently, actually. Um just within my own circles that it's funny a lot of women in pregnancy um 
have a flush of creativity. You know, their bodies are so hyped up on new life that they just want to do and make things and nest and knit and crochet and paint. And it's, it's an enormously amazing and generative time. But then early parenthood, uh, I'm sure there are some people who continue to knit and crochet and make things because there is a lot of, um, physical downtime, I guess, if you just, if you are breastfeeding. Uh, there's a lot of time that, you know, your hands are not occupied. But yes, this idea that a connection to the arts is not seen as a vital part of a person's identity, I find really, you know, a few women have said, oh, yes, you know, I went to a therapist and said, I can't write anymore. And they said, oh, well, do you have to? Like, could you just not be a parent now and write later? You're a trained professional and you don't understand how important this is to me. it's a huge, huge part of your identity, I think, if you are in a creative art. It gives you meaning. It's how you shape the world and it's how you read the world. And not being able to do that is really scary. And um, looking ahead, do you have any other projects or, or writing, writing projects on the horizon that you're, you're currently working on? Um, it's a little bit early, I think, to talk about any new projects because then I'll have to do them. <laughs> <laughs> But also it's Owen's last year before he goes into primary school. So I'm just really enjoying hanging out and sitting on the floor and making puppets and reading stories and having a sing and being a frog and all the other things that you do in like the space of 20 minutes with a five-year-old. Uh, I would, there are, there are things um, that I'd really like to explore further. Um, particularly the, you know, the idea of gesture and dance is something that is within the book quite to an extent and you know, I'd like to start taking dance lessons maybe and just do something with my body for the next little while but yes I mean I, I never thought that I would write a book because there are so many words in a book <laughs> and I've always been a really quite short condensed writer but now that I've written 60 something thousand words I do feel that I could do it again and maybe I will and uh, yeah, enjoy that last year before our school holidays dictates your oh, routine. But on boom, thank Forgot you. about the holidays. <laughs> Although we're in them right now, and I'm sure there's lots of people listening at home that have children milling around the house, um, recovering from the first term of school. Um, thank you so much, Jessica, for coming in. Uh, things that helped is Jessica Freeman's uh, book of essays. It's out through Scribe and uh, highly recommended to you whether whether or not you have children, whether or not you have um, experienced what what something of what Jessica has. It's a very beautiful read and, as I say, um, yeah, gorgeous uh, literary read. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so 10. much for having me. Later this year, Australia will find out whether its bid to gain a seat on the UN's Human Rights Council has been successful when a secret ballot is held to decide which countries will take up vacant seats on the peak international body. The government's been talking up its candidacy with vigour for the last little while, really, with Foreign Affairs Minister Julie Bishop flagging efforts such as Australia's advocacy for an end to capital punishment and our human rights dialogue with countries in our region as reasons for why we would prove a constructive member. Critics, though, have raised Australia's own patchy human rights record, particularly in relation to asylum seekers and the level of disadvantage experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders is something that we must overcome before joining such a pivotal body. To help us explore this issue, we have Emily Howie on the line. She's the Director of Advocacy at the Human Rights Law Centre and is soon to appear at a panel discussion hosted by HRLC called The Pros and Cons of Australia's Bid for UN Human Rights Council Membership. Emily, welcome to RRR. Thanks very much for having me. And so on your reading of this issue, why is Australia vying so strongly for a seat on the Human Rights Council? Uh, Well, Australia has never sat on the Human Rights Council. 
it sat on the precursor body, the Human Rights Commission, but it's yet to have a seat on this council. And I think Australia was probably pretty pleased with how it went as a temporary member of the Security Council a few years ago. Australia actually acquitted itself really well, made some um, some good constructive um, value add to what happened there, including humanitarian access, for example, in Syria. So I think Australia has has got a taste for how it can contribute on the on the world stage in these big human rights and humanitarian issues, and is keen to do so again um, in Geneva this time at the Human Rights Council. So there's a couple of countries that are also... There's two seats up for grabs and there's three countries, I understand, going for it. France and Spain are the other two. Where do we sit alongside those two other countries, do you think? Well, I mean, you're right. Australia is part of the Western European and other group at the Human Rights Council um, because the members of the council are elected according to their geographic region. So as a sort of, I guess, because of historical reasons, we're part of Western Europe. Um, because France is a member of the Permanent Five on the Security Council, it's almost certain to be elected. Um, that's just sort of the way it generally goes at the Human Rights Council. So it's really, um, it's really a contest between Australia and Spain for this seat. And... I mean, the the question of where we stand is really anyone's guess at the moment. I think Australia is definitely in for a chance. Um, we, you know, we're we're likely to to get the seat. The obvious differential between the two countries is that Spain is part of Europe and is very likely to get the European votes, and Australia is part of Asia. So, um, votes in the Asia Pacific region are going to be absolutely crucial for Australia. I'm curious as to to what you see as the the key issues Australia would want to pursue as part of a potential membership of the Human Rights Council, Emily, because, I mean, in in recent time, this government, particularly under under Tony Abbott, has been very critical of the Human Rights Commission in Australia, particularly Gillian Triggs. There's been cuts to the foreign aid budget and, at least looking from the outside, a bit of uncertainty around the types of issues we're willing to get involved in internationally. We recently backflipped on an initial opposition to an international investigation into atrocities perpetrated against Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. So are there key issues that you think are driving our membership or rather a desire just to have a seat at the table? Uh, Well, Australia has put out a a pledge document that shows the sort of areas of interest that it wants to pursue if it's elected to the council. And interestingly, one of those areas is national human rights institutions and the Australian Human Rights Commission is our national human rights institution. So it's pretty interesting to see. Um, I mean, for years, Australia has actually been an international leader on strengthening those those institutions and making sure that they play a, a, a proper and strong role in the international um, human rights system. But at home, we see the absolutely appalling treatment of the president of the Australian Human Rights Commission, Gillian Triggs, and the personal attacks on her. So, um, I mean, Australia has has stated aims, which are um, freedom of expression, uh, good governance, uh, women and girls, national human rights institutions, 
and these are like really important oh sorry and indigenous people um really important areas for australia to lead in but also areas in which there's room for australia to improve on at home so um look we 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 don't want to say we don't oppose australia being on the council and nor do we support australia's bid for the council position but if australia is really serious about wanting to be a leader on the world stage then it has to do more than just state what its aims are when it goes there it has to show a genuine commitment to human rights values um in the treatment of people in australia as well as in australian foreign policy and at the moment we've got some pretty glaring inconsistencies and I imagine that one of those inconsistencies uh, is the mandatory detention of asylum seekers and refugees. Is this something that is of concern to the UN Human Rights Commission at the um, at the moment, the Human Rights Council? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australia's treatment of refugees is has been the subject of examination by the Council's own experts numerous times who have all said that the offshore detention is in violation of international human rights law, that it violates people's right to be free from arbitrary detention and that the conditions that people are being housed in constitute cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. So, I mean, the reality is Australia can say what it likes about why it's holding people there, but the flagrant abuses that Australia is inflicting on the the people in offshore detention are clearly pulling Australia down um, in terms of its ability to lead internationally. Um, The the other important thing, I think, is that Australia claims that good governance and the rule of law are going to be one of the pillars of the Australian bid. And yet Australia is operating these camps on offshore islands with flagrant disregard for international law. So it's really important for Australia to get its own house in order to, when it makes these claims on the world stage, that it shows, you know, perhaps things aren't perfect in Australia, but at least Australia is um, showing a commitment to moving in the right direction. And I think when you're looking at good governance and the rule of law and you reflect on what's going on with asylum seekers, it's very hard to see how Australia is going in the right direction. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Emily Howie, Director of Advocacy at the Human Rights Law Centre, all about the pros and cons of Australia's bid for membership of the Human Rights Council. And they've got a public event coming up on Tuesday, April 11th, exploring that issue. And I want to ask you about other members of the Human Rights Council, uh, UN Human Rights Council, Emily, because there are 47 members and, and some of the others have Apache human rights record as well. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how the council itself is, is made up. Yes, sure. So the council is made up of 47 members that are reflective of different um, parts of the globe. So um, you have a kind of a group that would be elected from African countries, the Western European other group, the South American countries, that kind of thing. And they're elected by the General Assembly. So every UN member state can vote for the members of the council. 
this means that um, we do have some members of the council who don't have good human rights records and that there's certainly a movement of states that oppose the Human Rights Council doing any really important work addressing human rights crises. So the the thing, I guess, the most important thing that the Human Rights Council does is to address crisis situations for human rights and determine, for example, to establish a fact-finding mission or a commission of inquiry to assess what the level of abuses are in that country. So the Human Rights Council, for example, has had experts monitoring Cambodia and Burma and um, for a long time um, and then more recently has issued commissions of inquiry into the terrible abuses in Syria and North Korea. Now, some, some uh, states at the council actually say that the council should never do anything to intervene in those kinds of country situations at all. And that would be... I mean, if the council didn't do that kind of work, it would be failing in its mandate to protect the victims of human rights abuses. So, um, I mean, I think some of these states that have got terrible abuse, terrible um, track records in human rights that sit on the council are a real problem. And, and there is work being done to try and improve the standards of, of states who sit there. Um, the, the thing about Australia is that we're not saying it's, its abuses are so bad that it, it's, it's not able to sit on the council. We're saying Australia, the position, the position of being on a council is so valuable. The work that you have to do to protect victims of human rights, the most serious, grave human rights issues in the world will sit on Australia's shoulders and you have got to prepare, be prepared to stand up, spend diplomatic capital and lead initiatives to defend human rights in the face of strong opposition from those countries that say we should never intervene there. Um, we can't have Australia just um, back... back flopping on all these different resolutions as they come in, as it did on, on Burma. Um, it, Australia needs to be strong and it needs to defend human rights even when it's not in our national interest to do so, even when those things butt up against each other. And that's what's going to be the sign of a true leader on these issues. And when, when should we um, find out if the candidacy is, um, is successful? The, the vote will be held sometime in October. I don't think that there's a scheduled date for it at the moment. And we should find out straight away. It's a secret ballot held at the General Assembly. And um, then we'll find out if Australia is a member for the term 2018 to 2020. Thanks so much, Emily. It's been great um, having you on Triple R and we'll talk to you again soon, no doubt. Fantastic. Thank Thanks. you very much for having me. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R. 